Hey guys, welcome to VS Energy's Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey, Nick Taliska, and a very good friend and fellow engineer, Jim DePasquale. So in today's podcast, we will be discussing heat recovery projects, and this is obviously a very broad subject, but before we dive into it, since you guys don't know Jim, I figured I'd let him give a little bit of an introduction about himself. So Jim, take the stage. Thanks, Clayton. Uh, I'm Jim DePasquale. I've had a pleasure of working with the guys at VS Energy um, in my career. I'm a mechanical engineer with experience all over North America, mostly in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic. I worked for companies both large and small, and I'd say a breakdown of my experience uh, to relate it to what you guys are talking about in your podcast, I'd say is about 80% design work with about 20% energy work. I've been self-employed since the beginning of 2018 and uh, just been enjoying the ride since then. Awesome, man. So what is, um, just for our listeners, if anyone's interested, what is your company's name? So Deepest Quality Engineering. Right now, I'm a sole proprietor, self-employed. It's just me. I'm a one-man shop right now. So I'm doing all this, all the design, drafting, production documents, energy modeling. I guess if you would have to uh, describe my company it's uh, HVAC, plumbing, mechanical design, and I'm hitting every market from residential, commercial, industrial, aspects of healthcare. And um, I'm also performing, performing some energy and financial modeling among those tasks to sometimes procure my own projects when I prove the feasibility and the concept. And then I take it to design stage and then we go from there. Awesome, man. Super cool. We're really excited to have you on too, because uh, I think you'll be able to add a lot to this episode and many others as you join us down the road. With that being said, we'll dive into heat recovery, guys. And I think a good starting point, like always for our podcast, is just kind of giving a, a very broad brush definition of heat recovery and and, you know, the name is extremely self-explanatory, I would say, but I think it's worth explaining at a high level before we dive into some of the nitty gritty details. So I don't know which one of you gentlemen want to go into this, but, you know, what is heat recovery? Obviously, to me, in layman's terms, you're essentially recovering heat used for one process to either make that process more efficient or make another process more efficient. If that's recovering exhaust heat to preheat water coming into a boiler to make the boiler run more efficient. I mean, there's just a multitude of different things that heat recovery is and can be used for. But um, yeah, I don't know, kind of a high level definition if we want to start with that. That is good. And I think as, as um, energy engineers, designers, we need to always be mindful and creative because it, it turns out, and I've worked on some projects where uh, there's opportunities for heat recovery, but there's not a thermal host which can accommodate that, but a couple of pipes across a street and that heat goes up for sale at a, a great rate to a steam host or a thermal host right. that can use that energy. So, uh, And also, the, it, it goes back to Everybody says, oh, there's a, a hot stack, but if it only runs one hour a day or yep. four months a year, that may not be the most viable. So I, I know we'll get into that, but I think, yeah. you know, we're all creative guys and, uh, you know, have been in the business for a while. So 
it's important that we look at where can that energy be reused if not on site. Well, the you know, as I'm going through this, the thing that resonates in my head is uh, what do you always say that the cheapest BTU is the BTU you already paid for, something along those lines, right? I mean, that's this directly goes directly into this conversation. So, one hundred percent, yeah, absolutely. So, okay, glad we got that definition kind of outlined. So maybe let's dive into what are some different uh, sources for heat recovery. And I know we can kind of classify these as, you know, know, if you wanted to break it into like low, medium, or high heat. And, you know, for me, I'd like maybe one of you guys to maybe define what you would consider low heat temperature-wise, medium heat, and high heat before we go into some of these sources and classifying them. So I went back to the Handbook of Energy Engineering. And they classify it as low temp as anything below 450. In my okay. own mind, that that is, seems a little bit high because I would consider low temp anything you don't need to use untraditional materials or construction methods to recover. So I would say 200 or less in my mind would be. Yeah, that temp. makes sense to me. Yeah. yeah, medium would be you know 200 to 500, and then high is anything over 500 because at that you know. If you're working with temperatures, either gaseous or liquid, then you're into more, uh, not necessarily exotic, but less traditional materials of construction, pressures, safeties, and those kinds of things. Mark, I completely agree with your definition because, you know, I'm very familiar with the term low-grade heat. I just suppose I never actually bothered to look up the actual temperature at which people considered you know, what low grade heat was. And I was shocked to see how high it was. I, you know, I actually had a a number of mine just like you at around 200 degrees um, Fahrenheit. To me, that's, that's kind of a cutoff where you start getting into different, you know, methods and different situations into where it's actually viable to recover that heat. Yeah. I'm floored too by the, uh, the marks there, I guess so much of what we look at is really in that low to at least what I, yeah. I guess I've seen some high-grade heat ones too, obviously. Okay. So in that handbook, then, what did they consider like medium and high if they went to 450 for low? Medium is 450 to 1200 Fahrenheit, and uh-huh. high is greater than 1200. I don't know. Where would you see something greater than? We So we actually did a project on a, a VOC incinerator where they suck up the uh, fumes from a printing process they combust it in um, oxidizer and the discharge of that was well over 1200 degrees but before we could make it usable we actually had to add dilution air to it to bring it down to a temperature where we could safely recover heat out of it without a, a lot of additional safety so you know and we put an induced draft fan on it a set of mixing damper so that it actually mixed outside air with that 1200 degrees to get it mm-hmm. down into the 500 degree range where we could start doing some air to air heat exchange and those kinds of things. Nice. That's a cool stuff where you got to be a little bit creative and, you know, think, I don't know, maybe outside the box to be able to make some of these heat recovery projects work, which we'll be able to dive into more. So going back into some sources of heat recovery, now that we've kind of defined low, medium, high, low being to 200, 250, whatever you want to call it, medium, you know, 250 to 500 and high 500 plus. 
Um, I have a small list here in front of me of some sources for heat recovery. And if you guys want to add on to that, that'd be awesome. But, you know, low pressure steam recovery, uh, flue gas heat recovery, combustion exhaust heat recovery, which kind of is sort of the same as flue gas, if you want to look at it that way. And then, you know, low or HVAC exhaust heat recovery. So if you're just exhausting air out of a building, you can obviously use like a heat wheel to preheat your incoming air. That would be obviously low. Combustion exhaust to me would be high, flue gas high. And I don't know, what's steam? Would that be in the medium range? Uh, it depends. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It does depend. Um, what else? Do you guys have anything else you want to add to that? Kind of just your generic list of sources for heat recovery. You know, if you walk into a building and you see this, you can say, yeah, I can recover heat off of that. So it's not necessarily, well, it's, it's really what you're looking for is the differential temperature between the lowest sink and the highest source. Right, so right. Even simple things like if you have a washing process that requires once through makeup water and I have uh, 85 degree condenser water, it's easy to put a plate and frame exchanger on that chilled water system on the condenser side mm -hmm. so I can preheat my makeup water to the wash from 50 to 75. If it's continuous, it all comes down to how many hours a year is this process available and how, much, how many hours a year uh, is my sink my heat sink available. Yeah, to me, Mark, I think that's always been the thing I was taught about was that that differential, right? right? Like when you're doing an audit, even look for the you know coldest incoming stream and look for your hottest exiting stream, and there within there that is, range, right? you're be able to find some things to do. Mm -hmm. But that's why it's weird to think of it as low grade and high grade. And I get it, but you could have some place that has you know, some high grade heat, but it's just too, uh, it's not economical to capture it somehow, but you can do those things like, you know, just capturing a little bit of heat off, I don't know, 180 degree water or something and use it to then, you know, your condensate return or something to, you know, if you're not able to return all that preheat your feed water or something. So yeah, definitely a, a, a creative aspect of energy conservation and engineering. Because a lot of these things aren't always thought of, obviously. Yeah. And a lot of them aren't possible. Well, you know, if anyone's been tuning into our, our other podcasts, if, if they have some low-grade heat, they could always put an uh, absorber in and they're doing something, right? <laughs> well, I, I, know I, I know I said on that podcast that absorption cooling is the future. Yeah. And I would say that the twin sister of the future is heat yep. recovery. So I guess you'd have and, to have low grade water, but low grade heated water, but you know, yeah. You know, so we're talking about all these things about exhaust and steam and everything. But I think one of the biggest ones from what I've been reading about for heat recovery opportunities going forward, there seems to be a lot of attention on uh, the residential side, or I shouldn't say that, the sewer side of things, right? A lot of energy loss through sewer systems and plumbing waste, uh, recovering that somehow. And then the other thing that I imagine is talked about quite a bit are our data centers. These are huge oh, yeah. opportunities, yep. but again, one that struggles with, wow, we have a lot of heat, but how do we put it someplace useful, mm -hmm. you know, depending on where these data centers are built? But there are, uh, yeah, a lot of good opportunities still out there, I think. 
Well, and that would be kind of in the, obviously like the low grade kind of heat, right? Oh, wait. I mean, sub yeah. low if they're talking 450. Yeah. I mean, you know, you got, right. I don't know, 90 to 120 degrees. Yeah, and so that's what some of these places get, but gets a little limiting. Too. Even less. But, yep. Yeah. But that's a, and even in, you know, places with high uh, needs for service water, you know, like Mark was saying, heating from 50 degree groundwater mm-hmm. up to 65 is a big improvement. Yep. <laughs> that it is. But even you go back. So maybe 20 years, it was very common for hospitals to have in-house laundry and even um, skilled nursing facilities and those kinds of things had in-house laundry. So anytime you could do a a heat recovery project in a hospital, you could preheat that incoming water to the boiler because there's so much makeup water to either their domestic hot water heat exchanger or boiler and those projects were always available, but as they began more and more to outsource laundry services, mm-hmm. they've caught, they've gone away. But those are the kind of things that made a lot of sense, still make sense where they're in place. Oh yeah, you're talking, you know, twenty four hour hour operations right. on both ends there. Yep. Do you often find facilities say we have, you know, this source of heat, whatever it is, that they think they may, they should they probably understand their processes a lot, so maybe that's not an issue, but you know, they think it's more of a continuous or, or uh, I don't know, useful source of heat. And in reality, when you go and you look at it and you, you know, put a data logger on it, it's necessarily not. I don't know. I couldn't think of an exact, I couldn't make up an example off the cuff, but I got to imagine somebody's like, yeah, we want to recover heat off of whatever this, but you're like, well, it only runs two hours a day, so it's not worth it. Or like we've talked about, does that happen? A lot or often or not so much? I have seen it a couple times with uh, facilities that had a large uh, a large amount of exhaust fans. And just people have reasoned that we should capture all that heat coming off the exhaust right. fans. But, you know, you have 50 of them in a building. Uh, it's kind of tough. And even, you know, like run around loops where you would pipe like a glycol solution between, you know, an exhaust airstream and a mechanical right. room or something over to another... I don't know. And again, this was a few years ago, but they never seemed to deliver the promises that we thought they would, but uh, that could be some faults on our end too, going into it. Well, it all comes down to the economics. You you could have heat that you want to recover, but you know, if it's not economically feasible. And I think gonna... especially projects that are internally identified People have great intentions. They really do. Yeah, right, right. Operations folks are very Mm -hmm. fastidious and and conscientious in general, but data doesn't lie. You have to go back and collect the data. If you Mm -hmm. make the assumption that, uh, you know, based on what you're told, shame on you. That's not a basis for developing a project. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, well, let's talk about some different methods of heat recovery then. Obviously, if we have any variety of, what we what do we want to call waste heat, you know, whatever. We need to have a way to capture that to turn it into whatever we want to do with it. And again, just a small list on my end. And if you guys want to add to it, definitely add to it. But a good standard way of plate and frame heat exchangers. Um, Mark, you talked about this. Maybe you can elaborate on this. A wet surface heat exchanger, non-contact flu and contact flu heat exchangers, and uh, condensing heat exchangers, which would that be the same 
No. Same as wet surface. Yeah, same as wet surface, right. You know, if you want to elaborate on any of those or add some more to the list, you know, what do you? No, I'm, I'm monopolizing the conversation this morning. I don't what want does to do Jim that. want to add to the list? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a scary question, Clayton, because <laughs> this, in this, I get scatterbrained in this topic. We can, we can probably have 10 podcasts on the different <laughs> right. markets and methods of heat recovery. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, if I had to add to the list, I think a big one might be the application of uh, condenser water heat recovery Mm -hmm. or when your source and sink temperatures are very close or even flipped to where your source temperature is below your your sink temperature is the application of heat recovery heat pumps. Um, You know, that might be a whole other Mm. podcast on its own. Absolutely. That's that's very Very interesting. But when, when the lower you go in this, I guess we could call it ultra low grade of waste heat, that's where there's like an exponentially greater availability of waste heat. You know, obviously when you add a heat pump to the equation, now your your COPs and you're, you're doing work yep. to recover that heat, but it can still be economically viable in the right situation. Well, especially when you get into a heat pump situation as your lift goes down so much and the COP goes up. Yeah, it's definitely makes sense if you have continuous heat to talk about paying a little bit, you know, pennies on the dollar basically to recover BTUs. No, absolutely. In doing a little reading, particularly about these data centers, I seem to come across this, this these ideas of a, the high temperature and very high temperature heat pumps. Mm-hmm. So is that kind of what you're talking about there, Jim? Something to kind of... Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, magnify. It, it depends on what the, the requirement is. If you know, if it's a new building, generally new heating systems. If you're trying to recover this heat for comfort heating, you can. And if it's a new building, it could be somewhat easier because you could take advantage of lower supply and return temperatures on your heating system. Um, a challenge might be is trying to retrofit or feed mm. an existing building that is based on a higher, you know, 180 degree supply temperature. Now you're typically getting into an area of heat pump that's not generally off the shelf and available. Some are, you know, but when, once you start getting around 180 degree supply temperature, you're starting to push the envelope of the typical refrigerants and the typical compressor configurations on off the shelf heat recovery heat pumps you start getting into the world of ammonia refrigeration or some of the new um, HFO refrigerants. And it's possible. It's just kind of a new, I don't want to call it a new field, but it is being looked at. And I have seen new developments in this area um, to generate that higher lift application at scale. That's very interesting. Hmm. You know, um, I apologize for my ignorance, I guess it would be. But when you say 180 degrees, you're talking about like supply water temperatures, your heat pump is making that. And then is this like, would when you're talking about a heat pump, like, is that like an air source heat pump or a water source? I guess it doesn't matter. It depends. Or yeah, it's going to depend on on whatever the the source and whatever um, the supply is. And I guess when I was speaking earlier, I had water to water heat pumps in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, and depending on your application, especially if you're getting in, in the industrial market, I mean, there's all sorts of opportunity and different configurations yeah. in that market. Um, but to keep, you know, to keep the discussion simple, I, I suppose we could, in, in this 
subject focus on water to water to make things kind of easier right. to understand. And, you know, so if you had a waste stream of, you know, like a hundred degree water that you really, there's not much you can do with it. Mm -hmm. You know, you might be able to preheat some domestic water, but like we said before, maybe the instantaneous demand is not coincident with your um, source of heat, mm -hmm. but perhaps you have a continuous source of um, required heat, but you need a higher temperature. Yep. You know, the heat, re re heat recovery heat pump might make sense in that situation. Yeah, definitely. But you could use that to, to you know, quote unquote, pump that 100 degree heat and lift it up to 180 degrees and make it useful. You're going to do some work to do that, you know, as opposed to just using a heat exchanger, which doesn't really require any work. Right. The heat pump requires work, but due to COP um, and, and just how the heat pump works, yep. you could come out ahead. Yeah. That makes sense to me. What, and that's, you know, that's an interesting thought because, you know, another, another track of thought could be using that 180 or a hundred degree, right. To preheat the incoming water into a boiler. Although like if you had a condensing boiler, would it, still condense probably probably not i don't know yeah oh, it would. yeah sure it would. if you're making 180 degree and you're incoming oh no not at 180 yeah degrees. right right but uh, just a different track of thought to say oh let's, let's use a heat pump as opposed to a boiler and preheat the incoming water to the boiler and you know you could do your economic analysis i assume and say what costs more and whatever whatever but um Heat recovery is just interesting because there's a lot of different avenues you could take and you can be creative. Yeah, those heat pumps, that definitely adds a whole new layer into it in my mind. I got a, well, I don't have a heat pump, but my my, my folks have a heat pump at uh, at one of at their cabin and it it does good. It's impressive to see those things run. <laughs> well, we have geo, well, pond source geothermal in, at our house, but in the winter time, you definitely, now this is an old house, bear in mind, built in 1850. So the original heating system, which was installed in the thirties to replace the seven fireplaces, um, was, <laughs> yeah, was, was installed to use hot water, 180 degree hot water. So the cast iron radiators, everything was sized for 180 degrees. And when we went to the heat pump, Basically, you can get 140 degrees out of it, but when you do the math, um, the COP drops to the point with where our current fossil fuel prices are. Yeah, um, we shut off the heat pump and let uh, yep the backup fossil fuel boiler run at temperatures outside air temperatures below about 20 degrees when we need higher than 140 degree hot water to maintain the temperature. I mean, the heat pump will maintain the temperature, but yeah. it's running it at its least efficient when I have incoming water at 45 degrees and I'm trying to basically have almost a hundred degrees of lift. Mm. Which is still impressive. They can manage that and still oh, be, yeah. you know, yeah. in the, in the realm of you could do this and not be wasting a whole lot of money, depending on your electric costs and gas costs, obviously. Right. But those are money when they, uh, yeah, like for you, you know, what is it? 10 months of the year, you're probably running that. That's the heat right. Pump, and then yep. two months, you got to go to gas. So, yeah. And did your radiators uh, suffer performance? Well, all of the radiators have been removed except for one in my office, just because I'm sentimental. Gotcha. And <laughs> the first floor was replaced with a radiant floor 
So I put in oh, yeah. piping under the floor and transfer plates under the, you know, the original floors. And on the second floor, we put in rental uh, flat plate panels. If you're familiar with those, it's just a flat plate uh, radiator that mounts on the wall. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. That coats it nicely with uh, warm air, I'm sure. It does, and it takes up a lot less space. I mean, those sure. radiators were big. You don't need the 180 degrees going into it. Right. I was going to say the cat's probably disappointed not having the radiators, but having a heated floor, they probably enjoy. Oh, yeah. they. Oh. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Clayton. You had to go to the cats. <laughs> it was for the cats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure Mark's napped on those floors too, <laughs> yeah. not just the cats. Well, you know what? It, so not to digress too much, but my right. wife was a, a serious naysayer when I said, I'm taking these radiators out and putting in radiant floor heat. That'll never work. Okay. So it, the first year I only did the kitchen. So at that time, the grandkids were here just about every day. They wouldn't play in any other room except the kitchen. <laughs> So they right. lay on the kitchen floor, color on the kitchen floor. Everything was on the kitchen floor. So the next year, I, you know, we got the seal of approval and I could do the rest of the house downstairs. <laughs> it sounds like such a modern, pleasant way to heat a home. Yeah. You know? Radiant floor heating. I agree. Or a garage. Yes. <laughs> and with a right. heat pump. Look at that, you know. Well, then you get really efficient heat pump COP because you're using a really low... Um, supply temperature mm -hmm. when you're talking about a heated floor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. You're, right. you're not cranking it, obviously, to 180. You can't. No, yeah. no so, way. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. So what are some other reasons for heat recovery? You know, Mark uses heat recovery to heat his house. <laughs> um, in the industrial world, I guess, if you want to call it a commercial, why do we recover heat? Again, I have a small list. Maybe it covers a good bit of it, but you could generate electricity. Um, as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, you can reuse it in the process, whatever it is, to make it more efficient. Uh, hot water for heating, preheat pre incoming air. Um, Mark mentioned, I know in an offline conversation, drying processes like a desiccant. Uh, anything else? Anything we want to elaborate on? Oh, do you have swimming pools in there? Swimming pools. Sorry, there you uh, go. Yeah. There's a, there are a lot of processes, especially in the pulp and paper, where we do feedstock drying. So, you know, biomass feedstock, always beneficial to reduce the moisture content of that. Even processes where there are quench processes, for instance, in glass making that require, uh, obviously not furnace temperatures, but they require hot air to keep the mm -hmm. glass from cooling too quickly. So you can use you know, process heat to be able to move it over to put it into the quench process there. I mean, it really is so industry or application dependent, but, you know, we as energy and engineering professionals, that's our job to look for those matches and be able to say, well, in lieu of putting in heated makeup air, we have the opportunity to reclaim heat, use it for makeup air and infusion into industrial plants because I, I haven't, I've been in a lot of industrial plants, but very rare is the industrial plant that is positively pressurized. And at the same time, you know, they'll talk about, well, we have contaminants in our process. We have, yeah. et cetera. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, Sucking it all in, the, the bugs, the everything, yep. you know, and, uh, 
and I said this in an earlier podcast, we actually have one customer uh, up north of here that one morning in the middle of winter, all the employees came to work. They couldn't open the door and assumed that for some reason, the plant had shut down and went home, but it was because the door was sucked shut. What a depressing assumption. Like, <laughs> yeah, oh, <exactly>. no more. <laughs> It's closed. I, I I can't tell you how many site walkthroughs I've been on where I had to pretty much squat the door open. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've been on, you know, industrial sites that have been over a hundred to 150,000 CFM negative. Right. You know, they, they just, they just keep adding to their process yep. and reconfiguring. And, you know, typically their focus is just reliability and uptime. And, you know, yeah. that's where they're making their money yep. and energy a lot of times is, is an afterthought, um, which those two, for those two reasons, that's why I find the industrial market to have some of the most opportunity and, and low hanging fruit for heat recovery opportunities. Big, ugly, and dirty, right? That's right. Oh, totally. And it's kind of, Mark, and you said this before, when they add a new machine, you know, a typical industrial site, you know, they put a, another exhaust fan there and kind of contributing to that, uh, that negative pressurization. But you know, we talk about reusing heat or thermal energy in a process. Sometimes it's that process where it's coming from, but sometimes you also have to think about, well, what other process next door or over in that area of the building could use the heat as mm -hmm. well. And that's where, uh, like you said, somebody has the experience and has seen different applications really can benefit the situation. Also on your list, Clayton, I'm sorry, is a, a different revenue stream, you know, it could be totally external as far as, you know, they could generate electricity, use it in some other right. system application. But like I think Mark said earlier, they could also pipe it across the yep. street to wherever. Yep. No, I agree completely. So since I got a crew of smart gentlemen, I think, I think something that's interesting to talk about in the heat recovery world. And, um, you know, when you, when you just look at it for what it is, it's like maybe sometimes that you want to ask the painful, obvious question, like, why are we not recovering this heat here or whatever? But um, I thought it'd be interesting to have a conversation about like recovering heat from combustion air or exhaust. Uh, from what I know, it's not as easy as it sounds because you're dealing with, you know, corrosives and condensation of stuff you don't want to on your heat exchangers or buildup of things. Um, you know, I know it, it early in my career that I'm still pretty early in my career. I've often wondered why, why would you not recover heat off this? And, you know, sometimes it's not as easy as it sounds or looks. I don't know. I thought that'd be a good little discussion point just to focus a little bit on more exhaust, the high temperature exhaust, not as easy as just throwing a whatever heat exchanger in your exhaust stream and collect it, you know, reusing that heat. Right. And you're not talking about general HVAC exhaust. No, no, you're like combustion exhaust. Yeah. If you're running actual... a generator or uh, you know, gas powered compressor, you know, I know Mark, we've we've um divulged into kind of that a little bit with uh rank you know, the ranking cycle generators. But it's not super easy to just recover heat from exhaust, right? No, it's not it's not always easy. There is particulate always to worry about and in some cases there are condensables that you need to really understand the gas constituency before you start to say we can do that. No, I, I agree. When you're when you're dealing with exhaust gas heat recovery, the big thing you need to be careful of, especially if you're, you know, bring in 
you're supplying what we call our, our low grade heat below 200 degrees yep. is you're most likely dealing with condensing those flue gases, yep. um, which usually results in a, you know, more expensive, you know, stainless steel, other uh, higher cost materials in the heat exchangers mm-hmm. with engines. There are a lot of ways to recover heat. You have your exhaust gas, which is typically going to give you your highest temperature you can recover from. You have jacket water, yep. um, charge air, intercoolers that give you that lower temperature. But yeah, with, with engine exhaust and flue gas resol- exhaust, you have stack economizers. I think Mark spoke a little bit about it earlier. It's where you could you could have some more direct forms of heat transfer. You could inject water into the exhaust stream and have it evaporate and then condense it downstream in a, a, a condenser downstream. There's a lot of interesting ways you could potentially recover heat and BTUs out of that waste stream, mm-hmm. but it, but it is a challenge. Yeah. It's not as easy as just sticking a, a typical HVAC air to air heat exchanger in right. like a toilet exhaust. <laughs> no, but at the same time, go back to a traditional HVAC process, even with boilers I mean, I'm a big fan of of uh, recuperator. Just wrap the stack with a yeah. piece of pipe and yep. duct Absolutely. it down to the four draft fan, and you know, okay, we can raise our temperature. Pick a number: thirty yep. degrees, forty degrees. It, it's really inexpensive, very effective, and almost no maintenance, and it's a total non-contact heat exchanger. So, mm-hmm. that, you know, those kinds of things. I'm always for. Uh, not always, but in general, I want less maintenance headaches and long service life. And those kinds of things make a ton of sense. The same thing, uh, if I have an opportunity, a heat pipe is probably the cheapest, longest lasting, anything with a working fluid in it anyway that you can put in. So when I look at systems that, oh, we're going to put an electric reheat on this uh, system to dehumidify, it makes me nauseous. What happened to the heat pipe? You know, <laughs> pretty strong reaction. Yeah. Uh, hey, I, 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 that it is a strong reaction, and I've had it a few times. But, but you know, sure, it's easy to put on an electric heating coil. But does it make sense if you have a system that has a expected ten year, fifteen year life, uh, useful life? But it's also easy to put in a heat pipe. I mean, it's not like you're talking about anything that's. Well, it's uh, it's more work than an electric heating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It is easy. I mean, but those are the interesting things about those kinds of forms of heat recovery. You know, a recuperator or a heat pipe. It's like you don't have a, to me, a high initial cost either. So it makes it economically feasible, even if you're recovering small amounts of heat, if you want to call that on the on the grand scheme of things. You know. Yes. Sometimes I just have to tell myself, you know, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I, I, you walk into some of these plants or these job sites and, you know, your mind yep. is just going with all these elaborate schemes you can do to recover heat. But at the end of the day, when you, when you get down to the analysis, it's what does, the, what does your customer, your client want? And, you, you know, a lot of times it's just the simple, reliable, practical methods that ultimately end up being you know, the best solution. Absolutely. Well, I don't know if you've done this, Jim, but I don't know how much, I mean, I can't count them on both hands. That's for sure. But large plants you go into have thousands of horsepower of air compressor in a, either a room adjacent to the outside wall and they're all ducted to outside the wall and the building's negative is all get out. And you tell them, okay, we're going to put a, a set of dampers in here that during the winter will direct that air into the building 
huh? And yeah, the, you know, it's a year and a half payback. Yeah, literally. No, I, I've it's that's a great solution. I've had a couple projects um, in upstate New York that are pretty much exactly that, where you walk in and you kind of kill two birds in one stone. Right. Like we were saying, like we were saying earlier, you know, I've walked into plants that were extremely negative, and you know, their their air compressors, um, you know, they're just you know, dumping air right outside, sucking it from the space. And with some simple, uh, very simple, straightforward damper and duct design, you can have a switch over to where you're, you know, you're using air from, you're, you're rejecting it to outdoors in the summer when you don't want to recover, necessarily cover that weed's heat. Mm-hmm. And inside you could, you could heat it for free. You don't, you just open a damper, close another. Right. And now you are, you know, heating your building and there's a tremendous amount of waste heat available from these air compressors, you know, in the industrial buildings, you're, you're like Mark said, hundreds of horsepower of compressor heat is available. And it's, it's, that's low hanging fruit. And it seems to me when you find those good opportunities, particularly in those industrial settings, because they seem to kind of jump out sometimes when you have that experience, like you're talking about Jim, that the paybacks are really attractive. I mean, the economics are, generally pretty good with the i wouldn't say simpler but yeah i guess it would yeah with the simpler recovery applications that may have not been thought of oh absolutely in that specific situation when you're not adding like heavy duty like actual equipment and you're just adding i guess what you would call devices you know dampers Mm -hmm. a little bit of ductwork you know the the economics really shift into your favor where you have very low paybacks a lot of times under one year and when you know financial managers and investors see that it's almost it's almost always a oh go. yeah you're, you're, right you're going to move ahead yep yeah it's a, it, it may not be a home run but you know it's usually singles and doubles that win a game oh absolutely <laughs> that might have to be the uh, quote for the podcast right there okay whatever you want <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, I mean, what we're talking about now, I think is a, is a great takeaway for this, this whole episode is, you know, we, we started talking about, you could get into some really intricate and complex heat recovery systems to do a, a myriad of different things, but it, it boils down to also the economics and some of these singles and doubles are where you get the best, obviously the bang for your buck. And those are low hanging fruit. That's what you want to look for when you come into a facility. Well, you know, you expand on that simple air compressor project and there's other projects like that. Right. It has, you know, all of the attributes of a successful project, low installation cost. Basically you can sacrifice. Okay. I only use it in the winter, but the winters, especially upstate New York or the Northeast or the North anywhere. um, That's a, that's pretty steady and it's uh, 24 seven during the winter months. And, low maintenance. So why not do it? Right. You're not adding another, Oh, I'm going to put a, an engine outside that I'm going to put, you know, water jacket, heat recovery and exhaust heat recovery and all this stuff. And the engine manufacturer pushes back and there's a lot of, you know, complication. It, it's a single, you, you yeah. know, you put it in and it works and yep. nobody, nobody squawks about it. Well, lower stress on the engineering side too. I can imagine you've been into some heat recovery projects where you've, uh, you know, gotten down to the, let's start it up and been sweating a little bit, hoping that everything you calculated and engineered is surely going to work and everything. These are pretty straightforward. Yep. It'll work. 
There's no doubt about recovery it. Recovery projects that I had nightmares about for weeks <laughs> in advance. Nick right, will, right. Nick will attest to that. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering if you were thinking of some of those. <laughs> oh boy, there's a list. There's a list of them. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm still catching up on lost sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. now, now, what are the prospects of storing uh, thermal energy that's that's captured? Nick, that's a great question. And um, I, I think a lot of what we were talking about before, for a project to be viable, you, you typically need a coincidence of needs with regards to yep. heat being rejected and heat being uh, needed for a usable source. If that's not the case, you bring thermal storage into the equation or, you know, any type of energy storage. Um, now, now projects may have, uh, may be viable under the right conditions. Thermal storage brings a different element to the project. What do you do for thermal storage of heat? I mean, like I've always seen thermal storage of like, let's say chilled, you know, chilled water. You can do the ice, whatever. I mean, uh, I've seen on that regard, but I don't know much about heat, I suppose. Well, I guess, you know, there, like you said, there's, there's ice storage for the chilled water side. There's, there's stratified tanks, you know, big tanks where you're just, you know, you'll lose out on your latent heat aspect of the phase change, which is a significant part of the storage. But, you know, there, there's sites I've seen with, you know, upwards of million gallon tanks, where they're storing stratified water and you could do it for heating or cooling. Yeah. You know, when a lot of people speak about energy storage, I've seen it more on like a daily storage requirement. Like if you're charging ice banks, you know, you might be charging to commit at night and then loading them during the day. Yeah. Another energy storage um, method is seasonal storage. You could, you know, ground source, you know, that's another potential option it's kind of an outside the box thing where you know it's used consistently in geothermal heating applications Mm -hmm. but you're really getting outside the box if you're looking at district energy networks and you really get into bigger complex you know systems it can make sense and it can be viable and make projects feasible when integrated correctly and um, i know of a couple examples Uh, i know in Europe and Canada, I don't have the the names of the project at the top of my head, but you do some Googling and you'll see that there are um, some people really pushing the envelope and really getting outside of the comfort zones that sometimes we get into as engineers. Um, and I'm sure <laughs> getting into situations where you might be losing sleep at night before you actually go to start these things <laughs> yeah. up, you know, but yeah, getting into thermal storage that there's there's a lot of opportunity there. There's different methods of doing it and those different methods um, potentially can really open up a lot of opportunities that may have otherwise not been viable. No, I think I was reading Jim about something in, I don't know, one of these Icelandic countries, you know, Finland or Norway, where it wasn't exactly, you know, heat recovery that they've already used, but they captured, you know, solar energy and they use it to heat, underground tanks or aquifers or something yeah yeah, yeah. there's all summer you know yep. where it's still cold but then they pipe it to the houses during the winter and i kind of started thinking about i know everybody's talking about battery storage is really like the holy grail now of harnessing this wind and solar energy and saving it for when it's not coincident you know like you like you said and i started thinking about you know how easy is that to do with hot water 
Yeah, there, there's systems running right now that are using solar thermal energy to heat ground source, you know, seasonal storage. Um, and then they're running organic Rankin cycle generators off of that to power pumps to, you know, pump the the water through their, their system. There, there's some incredible stuff going on right now. If you, if you look around and um, sometimes get out of our comfort zone and see what other people are doing, you know, it really opens up the potential um, to, to apply some existing and somewhat new technology to existing problems to, to have a really big impact. It's just, you know, you, you gotta get, you gotta get out of your comfort zone, right. and, you right. know, do the, do the calculations. You might not necessarily find the solution in your ASHRAE books. You really have to have a solid understanding of the, of both the fundamentals of thermodynamics and vapor compression and, and all the stuff we were taught in college. And then you have to, also have an equally strong, if not stronger understanding of how to apply that in the real world, how, how that actually works when you, you step out of the classroom and take all these things and put it together. There, there's a lot of opportunity out there. No, it's, it's a great point. You know, when like guys as old as Mark and I, you know, we got to get out of our, you know, what we thought, you know, we knew all these years sometimes, and it's an evolving field and things that you may know you know, you knew it did not work 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, may work now because it's just changing utility rate, climate, the structure of it, different technologies. And it's funny, a lot of the things you're probably working on would seem like a uh, Rube Goldberg diagram. <laughs> you know, years ago. Well, I mean, think, just, just think back how difficult it was let's just say you had to start a uh, chiller and the condenser water temperature was below pick a number 75 degrees you couldn't start the chiller yep yeah you, you had to basically find a way to heat the chill water loop or worse yet keep the chiller online and, and falsely load it so that you know in october when you knew the temperature would go up to 70 degrees during the day or 75 and it was 55 at night your cooling tower wasn't so cold you couldn't provide cooling i mean the the paradigms of the past you can't be hung hamstrung by those and i think that goes back to part of what jim spoke about earlier uh in terms of being a smaller more agile more flexible and more more cutting edge than some of the big companies. Uh, it's imperative that we all, you know, uh, educate, absorb, and apply current technology, not just what we always did. Adapting is a big part of it. And you have to have your eyes open to what is out there and what is possible. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. You got to imagine you got to get away from those, if you want to call them like cookie cutter, heat recovery, or anything kind of things, you know, think outside the box. There's a lot of pieces to the puzzle. You just got to put them together. Well, a lot of times I would say the cookie cutter, the simple methods or, or things you can do don't necessarily go out the window, but yes. just your, yeah. your your array of what can be offered. I mean, simple is always beautiful and always seems to work, but sometimes a little complexity may give you that better edge, you know, mm -hmm. on whatever you're looking to achieve, whether it's energy conservation or profitability. Yeah. No, and, you know, adding on to what Mark said earlier about that chiller um, example, you know, the someone decided to go outside the box and get away from oil bearings and throw 
these crazy magnetic bearing, you know, type chiller compressors in these chillers. And that kind of changed the game, you know, that allowed for, you, know, you don't have to worry about oil issues. Right. Um, and you know, you could accept slower condenser water temperatures and now you're not, maybe you know, it changes your, your, your strategy for controlling the condenser water system. Now, maybe you're not bypassing water. Now you want that colder water. Now you're getting, you know, I've seen COPs running actual above 15 at times with the chiller loaded up, taking in, you know, 45 degree condenser water. And now, you know, you have to stay on top of this because how does that affect your heat recovery strategy? Yeah. Right. <laughs> when you have chillers running at COP of 15, yeah. all right, maybe I was going to use some waste heat, you know, that that's why you just have to stay on top of these things mm -hmm. because things are changing so quickly. What What's always been done and what's always made sense may not be the case anymore. Oh, true. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to ask, what do you guys think is the biggest uh, market for heat recovery? But we probably all yeah. would agree on industrial. Yeah. I mean, just as far as the diversity of opportunities mm -hmm. and, and what they do. Well, I think not only for that reason, but to Jim's point, industrials are focused on one thing, and that's making product, make product. And not so much nowadays, but at least in the past, uh, energy was largely regarded as an overhead cost. Mm -hmm. Now there are better metering processes in place and better assignment of actual cost to manufactured product. But the, And there is a focus on it, but there's still huge opportunity in the industrial sector for heat recovery as well as many other uh, energy and cost reduction strategies. I would, I would agree. As we all would. I, mean, I would say <laughs> data centers have got to be close behind that from everything I understand. And, you know, with the ubiquitous push to cloud computing, that tends to lead to larger, larger. you know, server farms mm -hmm. and everything. And from, you know, the, the news articles I seem to read about new data centers, they're all going up like in the middle of nowhere, as it seems. Mm -hmm. You, you were talking about data centers being in the middle of nowhere. I mean, have you read about the offshore data centers? They just sink them in the ocean. Oh boy, haven't heard anything about that lately. Oh yeah, I didn't know if that was really being done. They're underwater. Underwater. Wow. So the whole exterior of the vessel is actually the cooling uh, surface. You know that's interesting to me. Pretty good heat sink. Yeah, right there. but like, are there? How much stuff can you put? I mean, probably a shit ton, but um. <laughs> Like, that a that's an term? energy yeah. term. Yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the implications of that, though, obviously that heat goes into the ocean and then eh, it's, that's interesting. It's like, you know, what, what are the implications on, you know, right around that data center if the water goes up five degrees, three degrees? I don't know. That's interesting. It's a well, cool thought. Yeah. I mean, and you know, basically during the course of its life, it'll, it'll get covered with, um, uh, and then your heat coral, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, and then your heat transfer surface. At that point, they're basically planning to cut the cable, and it, it's abandoned in place and becomes yeah. part of the, uh, you know, the wow. ocean bed. Your grandchildren's coral reef, Clayton, will a be data center, know, an old data center. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. But it's a good point, though. You know, even talking about conventional heat recovery is there is always an impact if you put another set of coils in an airstream or something. You know, you can't just look at how much heat we're getting out, right. obviously. I mean, 
guys know this, but, and the same goes with everything. There's more, more friction, more resistance, pressure built up. And there is a, there is a negative side of it that needs to be accounted for. But hopefully if you get the right application, that downside is very small and pays yep. off. Yeah, I think so. Well, I know Mark had a project, right? And you guys probably, well, maybe Nick was on this one. Maybe he can't talk about it, but wasn't there one where we were going to start some pumps up to oh, use a water no, jacket? I, I really and, don't want to talk about okay. that. Okay. That's, was, I, I don't know. I literally know. had, it, it was like a, it, yeah, it was, it was, but you know, my nightmares were almost like a uh, Godzilla movie where the stack blew up, it fell over, it burned the town down, people were running in the streets. And I literally had a recurring nightmare for a few weeks before oh my gosh. I started that project up. Yeah. And it almost came true. It was an unfortunate part. But we won't talk about that. That was kind of your recuperator, right? Yeah. 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 That's what I've been, I was thinking about that the whole episode, if he was going to talk about that. Well, let me think about it. Maybe next time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I think it, that has different lessons that maybe are unrelated <laughs> to heat recovery. Okay. All right. Well, some of the lessons are, and, and uh, you know, my recurring mantra in all of the podcasts is: there's no substitute for eyes, ears, boots on the ground. No substitute. Yeah, I know what you're you going to say. Yeah. Almost, you need you need to believe nothing unless you see it observe it, understand it yourself or someone that you really trust, you know, gives you the information. So anyway, that's my, so, yeah. If somebody says the pumps are running because the pilots on pilot lights on, then, you know, you need to go a step further. That doesn't mean the pumps are on. I think that's the moral of the story. <laughs> that's the moral of the story. <laughs> pumps aren't always on. You got to go look. Right. Yep. Alrighty, guys. Oh, I think with that being said, we'll wrap up this episode. Um, we covered a lot. There's a lot more to cover, and I think it's due for a part two. So for our listeners, keep an eye out for uh, Heat Recovery Projects Part Two, where we'll kind of narrow down the focus a little bit more. Like I said, this one was a bit of a broad discussion, but nice to just talk about it in, in general. And stay tuned. Our next episode, we'll be discussing free cooling, so kind of the opposite of heat recovery in a way. So tune in for that. Um, Mark, Nick, and Jim, thank you very much for your expertise in the subject. And hopefully, Jim, we can get you on for some more podcasts because you obviously have a, a lot of knowledge to add to the podcast for our listeners. So guys, for more information on us or our, our, you know what we do, check out our websites, www.vsenergy.us www.appliedfacilitiescience.com or www.dpasquale-eng.com. And I'll put the links in the in our little description so you guys can find them and look us up and check us out if uh, if you're interested. So thanks a lot. Have a great day.